update our art check. Best of podcast. We go live Monday, Wednesday, Friday on YouTube, 9 p.m. California time, and you can join us there live in the chats or watch them later. You can always check things out at coreyker.com slash 48HR. We take the best conversations from those live streams and rip them and put them into this podcast. Today's topic is timing in comic book panels. And so in our most recent episode, we talked about um, like layout and composition and blocking and shot choice and a lot of like the kind of overarching like cinematic features that you can include and incorporate um, into the medium. But also we talked about like the differences between kind of film and, and comics. But one thing that we didn't really touch on that, that I find really interesting, and I don't know that I have... Um, spent as much time thinking about it um, as maybe I would like to uh, at this point is how time works. And I know that like um, Scott McCloud, who's, who's written several books on making comics uh, one by that name talks about the amount of space that a panel takes up, like space equals time. Right. And so if it's a bigger panel, it takes up more time or if it's a longer panel, it takes up more time. Um, and then there's also things that you can do as well to like do things like um, more words means that you spend more time in that panel and a silent panel means that you might brush over it. Um, yeah. and, and so you can, you can, you can control the pacing, right? So if I were, and I started in, I started in video, right? And so if I, as a video editor wanted uh, beats in a, in a narrative, or if I wanted uh literal beats in the, in the music bed to match cuts that I'm doing in the video. That's really easy because time equals time, right? And the yeah. viewer is forced to experience time the way that I cut that video up. But in comics, it's different because you can't sit there and look over your reader's shoulder and go, Oh no, 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 no. Don't turn the page so quickly. Like you have to look at this part longer. Like I meant for you to look at this longer. So there are, there are other visual cues that you need to do. Yeah. To control the time and control the pacing, speed that up, slow it down, make sure people stay in the moment or make sure they get caught up in the, in the montage, you know, or, or whatever. And so, um, I actually, I'm really just curious, Josh, like, what is it that you do, um, to, to be able to kind of control the time and control the, control the pacing, control like the character beats and the story beats and the scene changes and, and making sure that like people are feeling kind of the way that you want them to feel as, as you're taking them through a story. Yeah. I mean, um, I didn't really think about timing when I first started cartooning and then, um, it was actually Chris Ware and a lot of his talking about his thoughts on timing. Um, because Chris Ware annoyingly <laughs> is also an incredible pianist and he does uh, ragtime piano. Oh, interesting. And he talks about the similarities between like ragtime and jazz and making comics. And R. Crumb's a big advocate of that too, like the connection between jazz and comics. And um, both of them kind of make this argument, and it's a pretty solid one, about how there's like a tempo and there's an underlying structure to comics. And, you know, when you hit this like kind of perfect medium with cartooning where you've got like a tempo and a structure and then you're able to kind of freestyle over that a little bit, you end up with this like kind of tempo and um, rhythm to your story that um, tra can translate and read kind of like somebody reading sheet music. 
And it's an interesting theory, and I, and I think it, I think it holds true, at least with my experience of reading comics, um, where people are pretty conscious of that. It does weirdly kind of have um, a control over your timing, and so I've tried to implement that um, when I can. And it's like anything else in comics, where it's like you have so many beasts to tackle and and so many battles to fight. You kind of have to pick a few. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's one of those ones that I constantly try to remember, um, so that there's like kind of a tempo and a rhythm to the size of the panels like you were talking about. So like a larger panel to kind of have a little more time on a smaller panel to kind of have a quicker time on. And, um, and then also a pattern to it. So like trying to create repetition within the grid of the comic. Um, so like the structure of the comic, if it's like, like in, in the case of, um, the one I'm working on now for the short, for the, um, anthology, it's starting with one wide shot and then uh, four small panels beneath. And it's built basically on a um, six uh, panel grid. So like, you know, if it's, if it's uh, it'll be like, like one of the pages is like two and then a wide shot and then two. Um, But the wide shots like two panels width. So it's like a six panel grid. Um, but the thing that I'm doing to kind of create like a cadence and a tempo to it is um, I'm repeating words. Like, so there's, there's words that are at the beginning that repeat at the end. Um, and similarly, I'm actually flopping the order of, so the intro page like reverses in, in its order uh, at the end. So it's like having kind of a, a tempo that rises and then falls like, um, are you doing it like a chiasmus poetry style, or? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I'm sorry. What's Ch- a chiasmus Ch- poetry style? Chiasmus is an ancient um, style of Hebrew poetry, and they find it a lot in the Old Testament, um, where <clears throat> you have, uh, like, it goes, it goes A B C C B A, but yeah, but it yeah, can, yeah. but it can happen, it can happen over the course of an entire story, but like the beginning, the, the end is a twist on the beginning and, and, yeah. and the minor difference in, in the, in the mirror and in the change is, is where the meaning is. Yeah. So it totally would be that, that format because that's pretty, that's a pretty accurate description. It's like an ABC and then CBA for the mm-hmm. end. Um, so it's, it's, and, and most of that just comes from like, um, creative writing in, in general, like, you know, weirdly enough, even in fiction, you're still kind of writing an essay, weirdly enough. Um, you're still kind of making an argument. You're you're kind of uh, proposing an idea, and then you're coming up to some kind of resolution from it. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a morality tale. Yeah. But, um, but I think that structuring, like, I'm a big structure fan, and so, like, the idea of, like, kind of starting with a thesis or an idea that then in conclusion is kind of repeated a little bit. And if you're having a longer story, like in quarterly stories, for instance, there's a lot of little refrains that kind of reference previous parts. Um, and, and once again, that's like a tempo kind of thing where, you know, you want to kind of create, like when you're listening to music, there, there's like a, a chorus. And then there's sometimes like a breakdown that's like slightly referencing the chorus 
Um, but like the, the structure of a song is really based on repetition. So it's like, and, and, and rhythms and, and counts. So it'll be like four, four, four. Um, you know, groups of four are usually pretty common with that. Um, and then like the notes kind of need to reference each other. And then even if you kind of diverge from it, you have that structure of the notes, um, holding things together. And I think that working on a grid in panels, um, you know, we should at least consider it and, and take it into account. Like you were saying too, um, length of text really makes a big difference in timing. So if you have a smaller panel that you want somebody to really spend time on, obviously if it has a lot of text, they're going to be spending more time with it. Um, or if you have a really complex panel that, that doesn't have a lot of text that you want people to, to spend time on, maybe that should be like a full page you know, a right. full page spread or something like that. And, and but also with that, I think you need to take into account, um, kind of image flow. And so yeah. like there's eye tracking software that people will use when they're doing UX or UI design on like, where are the users looking on the, uh, on the thing? I remember I was sitting in a lecture. It wasn't a lecture. I was sitting in a workshop one time where, um, you know, this newspaper had transitioned to digital successfully and, and, you know, is one of the few newspapers that's like growing their audience rather than losing their audience and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And one of the things that they had done is they had realized that, um, people on the internet, especially people that are looking at a web page, um, are almost completely oblivious to the right hand column. The right 20% of that page is completely a blind spot. And that's because traditionally since the nineties, um, that's where we've been stacking ads. And so people have trained themselves not to look there. Um, and, but they were able to say like, you know, when we put something up here, you can see all of these little lines. There's hundreds of little lines and where the page gets darker, um, is where more people are looking. And that got me thinking about like design in general, because in graphic design and UX UI and all that stuff, uh, motion design, you think about this a lot. Um, and I, and I see, I see some comic book artists, um, post things where they're being very conscious about flow and it's where like the placement of an arm or any, any high contrast area where you're, where, where it creates a line or a visual image, you can lead someone through a complex image. There are some pages that are so complex and so many people are in it or so many characters and it's a big giant crowd scene and they leave it up to the colorist to solve that problem. When I feel like, you know what, had you designed this only slightly differently and changed some of the angles of these things and moved a building over a tree, then you can actually cause someone to navigate this crowd and lead them through this image rather than just hope that the colorist is good enough to like have some hue contrast that does that for you. But like in the construction of the page, you can do that and you can do that with word bubble placement. You can do that with the the actual composition of what you are drawing and a combination of those things and panel layout. Like we know 80, 20 rule, you know, exactly. Like Like we know in, in English speaking countries, you should not um, stack small panels on the left-hand side on top of each other because people don't know whether they're supposed to go right to left or top to bottom because we read yeah. right to left and top to bottom. And, and so stacking that makes it really hard to know what the order is. 
Um, but you, you can know, stack stuff on the right and you're okay. You know, it's, I, I'm glad you're mentioning this because I actually think, especially if someone's listening and they're kind of new to comics, um, that's something to be really aware of when you're first approaching comics because most people, when they first start making comics, want to do dynamic paneling. Yeah. And they don't have the basics of just like a standard, like making a comic work as like a, a, a six or nine grid. Um, and if you can't make it work with like a nine panel grid as just boxes, you're going to have a lot of trouble when you break outside of the boxes. Yep. And so I always recommend um, really kind of studying um, how the eye flows, learning the Z pattern. There's like this beautiful, like natural Z that makes for great compositions. Um, and, and looking just a little bit into grid design that, that does graphic designers have been studying for years. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's certain patterns you can make with value. You can lead the eye with line. Um, and I think these are like, w- once you kind of start studying those things, I think a lot of people will understand why I'm such a like Chris Ware nerd, because he will have <laughs> a cover of one of his comics that takes like two or three hours to read. Yeah. But it's like it flows perfectly and you could show it to anyone and they're going to read it in the same direction. But he has so much control over how somebody does it that they'll be holding it and rotating the page like to follow it. But it like it doesn't matter who's looking at it. They're going to rotate it the same way. That kind of control over a reader is is kind of mind blowing to me. Um, And I love playing with that. And I love playing with um like I, I did a, a little just text flow thing where I took a Beatles song and uh, just did the lyrics um, in a way that would make you just kind of flow all over the page in a way that really defies a, a lot of our standard, just left to right, left to right, left to right, left to right. Um, and so it has you going like left and then down and then up and over and kind of all over the place. It's fun to mess with. But before you mess with it, like know the power of, of it and know that like if done wrong, um, you're going to be failing at the primary reason you're making a comic in the first place, which is to, to tell a story. Yeah. And so if, if, if you can't make heads or tails, which I see all the time with a lot of amateur comics where sometimes it'll be beautifully illustrated, but you literally can't even figure out where to go next. And if you're not giving indicators to the reader what proceeds after something else, you're, you're going to have a, 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 what might be a really beautiful page, but I don't think you're going to have a very successful story. Yeah. So that's something to really keep in mind because I, I see that all the time with newer cartoonists where the flow of the page is um, – I know they're trying to like break outside of the box and stuff, but I, I want to – I want to be able to meet these people and be like, look, just keep in the box. Just just keep the box in the simple grid until you can make it work outside of that, you know? Yeah, interesting, interesting story. I the first and I, I well, the first and only um short film that I've I've tried to animate, I did the storyboards for it. And I ran those storyboards by my cousin who works at uh, a well known um animation studio. And uh and I was I was talking him through it to get his feedback, and he was like, 
saying really basic stuff that I already knew. Like he was yeah. saying stuff like, well, you know, like, you know, if something, if, if something important is on the left side of the screen, then when you cut to the next scene, you know, if it's a quick cut, then you need something in that same spot. That's important, you know, so that the user, the, the viewer doesn't have to like guess where to go. And, you know, yeah. like, and you should do, you know, like you should do like hard cuts instead of fades and, and stuff like this. And, and I was like, I, I know this. Why are you bringing this up? And he said, well, like, you're like, look at this shot right here. What are you doing? And I said, oh, well, have you seen Birdman? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, like in Birdman, like the whole movie is, it feels like one continuous shot. And so that's what I'm doing is like these five scenes, I want them to feel like one continuous shot. And, and he, he said, you know, maybe on your first film, you should try to learn the basics yeah. really, really well before you try to do one of the most innovative things that's, that's ever happened in film. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so like I had, I had these delusions of grandeur that I could just like jump into this medium and be like, well, I've watched movies before, so I can make one and I'm going to yeah. make it the hardest way possible. And, and I feel like a lot of, a lot of beginners do that, that whole Dunning Kruger thing. And sometimes yeah. that's good, but like, there's a reason that like every decent coach at any level of anything is going to talk mostly about fundamentals, right? Yeah. yeah. You're not going to take a freshman basketball team and be like, all right, let's, you know, let's practice our uh, no luck hook shot. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, no, we're going to, we're going to run this one offense for yeah. ever until you guys can do it in your sleep. And that's because like fundamentals are what make things work. And so I really, yeah. I really like that about what you're talking about because there is a, there is a desire to not follow what everybody else is doing, which I think is good, but taken to an extreme, uh, it becomes nonsensical. You know, like there, there are several rules out there um, that if you don't understand them inside and out, when you break them, it's nonsense. But if you yeah. understand them really, really well, when you break them, it's genius. And that you, you get a lot of experience doing fundamentals before you can get to the point where you're like, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to cause these type of emotions because it's against the rules. Yeah. And, and a, a really important part of this too, is like have someone you rely on that you can show your thumbnails to, um, especially when you're starting comics, like show it to other people and not your friend, not your wife, like show it to people unless you really believe that they can be objective. Um, show it to people, show it to your grandma, show it to someone who's not going to understand it. And um, if they understand it, if they can follow the flow, like find the person who's like the worst person for reading comics, like they have trouble following comics, yeah. find that person and, and make it work for that person. And if it works for that person, then it's going to work, you know, but, it, but you need like some controls when you're going to break the rules. Cause like, once again, um, you know, you want to make sure that people know how to read your story. And, uh, and there, there are some people who just like break the rules in beautiful ways, but they, they know the fundamentals so well. Um, like I think there's um, uh, like, if you guys have ever seen, um, Jason Shiga's work, 
he does like choose your own adventure comics that are just like the layout and the paneling is like this weird diagrammatical grid, but it's super easy to follow. And that's yeah. kind of the genius of Jason Shiga. But it's like he he kind of started smaller and then kind of expanded from there. And I think the guy also has a background in like um, engineering and like physics or something. So he's got yeah. like a mind for for creating structures. And and that's the thing. Like comics are based on a structure. Um, that's the beauty of those um, sequential grids. So like, make it beautiful, be ambitious, but keep the the tempo and the um, and have a reason. Like weirdly enough, having an intention. Um, it, it it just kind of translates. It's a it's a it's a weird thing about art where it's like without intention, a lot of the time, um, art reads exactly like that. Like, what's the intention here? Whereas if you have an intention, it at least gives you an underlying structure, like a box to work in. And and something so, um, something that I've noticed that you brought up earlier that I think uh, came to mind is you should study these things, right? You should go out of your way to read books on them and talk to people and listen to interviews. There's tons. We are in an age of unprecedented information. I mean, um, you can, you can listen to creators talking about and, and showing their craft, uh, like never before. And you should do that. And the reason that you should do that is because the more that you do that, um, the more information that your brain has to pull from subconsciously, because I, I still maintain that learning the golden mean, the golden section, the golden rule, the Fibonacci number, whatever you want to call it, um, is very useful, but at no, but but at no point in time, do I think most professional designers sit down and lay out that grid and go, how am I going to fit this into a Fibonacci spiral? Um, but I do think that it happens instinctually. Like once you understand that, you know, most things should not be dead center, um, you're going to know, okay, it's, I know that's wrong. So where should I put it? And, and it's the same thing with this. Like you kind of mentioned at the beginning that there's only, you know, there's a bunch of different beasts to tackle in making comics and you can only like actually consciously focus on a couple of them at a time. But I think, I actually do think that you can unconsciously focus on, on, on several or not focus on them, but, but use them to your advantage. And so once you have like studied, like how does Magnolia use, um, light and shadow to give you such an incredible layout. And you'll notice that yeah. backgrounds switch from dark to light with no reason, but it yeah. works and you can study his work. That's now in your brain so that when you're trying to lay out and solve that problem, your brain can, can, can use that. And I think the key that really got this line of thought going for me was intention. If you are yeah. intentional about what it is that you're trying to communicate then your brain is going to be like, okay, we've, we've studied this, right? We're trying to make people angry. And if we're trying to make people angry, um, you know, like it starts pulling a bunch of different things and you might intentionally and consciously make two or three decisions and subconsciously make 20 decisions. And that's not because you have good instincts, but that's because you have taken the time to reverse engineer and study excellent work that does that. And so you're like filling up your, you know, your ammo belt with, with, with those creative bullets. And so that your brain can like fire those off when they're needed without yeah. that, 
you know, you're just going to be pulling the trigger and nothing's going to fire because you don't have any, you don't have anything to fire. Agreed. And, and as we kind of started this with, like when you're, when you're taking on creative projects and this is your sole way of making a living. And a lot of the times the creative projects we want to do aren't the most financially rewarding and, and require like more, like a lot of short term investment um, for a long term result. And so like, you have a limited amount of time, you have a limited amount of resources, and you have a limited amount of space to kind of make these things happen. So the more you're absorbing information so that you're prepared when it comes to game time and you have your, like, say you're doing the 100 days challenge, you have your 30 minutes to sit down and work on your work. But all day, like let's hypothetically say you're working fast food or something, all day while you're working fast food, maybe you're able to listen to a podcast and you're listening to audiobooks on graphic design and on the grid and um, you're listening to interviews with cartoonists about cartooning and the art of cartooning and inking and um, you're absorbing that information so that when you hit the table, you've got that inspiration and it's more of an instinct and, and less of a chore because like I said, um, you know, you can study this stuff forever, and I don't think there's a single person um, who'd be able to verbalize um, every every choice they make in art. Yeah. However, I do think, like Corey was saying, you you can kind of make it intentional. So, so tying this back to like timing, um, a little trick I would think of is like um, it's it's a basic like music trick, but it's just like you know, if you can clap, like can you clap one, two, three? four, right? Okay. What happens if you clap like one, three, four, like you, you don't clap on two, you just clap on one, skip two, three, four, right? So that's my point being like, what, what if it goes, what if it goes one, two, three, four, right? So the one and the two make one long panel. Yeah. So if you're thinking about like panel sizing, you can extend, like, if you're thinking about just, like, a typical, like, 4-4 four, four tempo, and you extend your panel for 2 of 4, right, it's 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 half the size. That's a longer time frame. Um, if you extend it for 3 of 4, that's a much longer time frame. If it's 1 fourth, that's a quarter of the time frame. You know, if you want something a little faster, maybe it's an eighth. You know what I mean? Um if you start thinking about dividing it, like, because music is all based on a measure and a timing. And so comic panels are based on measurement on a ruler. (laughs) But it's like, if you think of the measurement on the ruler as equivalent to like timing and music, it starts creating some really cool control over the time that the person reads it. Um, And it's, it's a tool that's available and I'd like to see more cartoonists use um, because imagine you want an action sequence that kind of feels like operatic, but then it has a breakdown that feels like heavy metal. Um, You can actually do that. (laughs) You know, you could do a page with like 90 panels that you want to just fire off like super quickly. And then you could do a page with two panels where you want it to slow down and be like a really a long refrain um, it's, it's cool and it's fun to do. And, um, that's one, like, I, I think when we dip into this kind of stuff, I think Corey and I can go really long talking about it because this one of the things that's addictive about comics, yeah. um, yeah. 
like like Corey just barely touched on line of action and uh, some some basic stuff for like for storyboarding that also applies to comics and like that would be like we gotta get into that for another topic because that's <laughs> one of my pet peeves too in in comics um, that rule is broken a lot with um, with uh, with newer cartoonists and it's it, it becomes really confusing to follow the timeline of the story so I guess that kind of ties in time and tempo too but it is it is um, should we get in the line of action or should we call it <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm good to to go for another few minutes. That's fine. Okay, so like line of action is a, a basic rule in film, where um, let's say you're having a conversation sequence at a table, and one person's sitting on the left side of the table, another person's sitting on the right side of the table. If you change shots, the person on the left should remain on the left. The person on the right should remain on the right. If you do an over shoulder shot. It should be over this shoulder for the person on the left, right? Because if it's coming from back here, then I'm still on the left. Person in my foreground's on the right. I, I want to interrupt um, here because I oh, go ahead. I really struggled with this when I first heard about it. Yeah. Um, and and I will tell you a trick that will work really really well and will feel really stupid to do. Right? It feels stupid, but this will make so much more sense because I couldn't figure it out. Right. Because how do you change camera angles and keep people on the right or the left? Here, here's how you do it. Okay, If you uh, take two action figures and sit them next to each other, that they're facing each other, and then take your phone out and put it in camera mode, and and I'm, I'm not kidding, you if you're looking down at that like a bird's eye view and you draw 360 degrees, cut that circle in half um, right where they make the line, right? So from their eyes to the other person's eyes, that's that's where that line goes. On one side of that circle, you can't you can't shoot any angle from that side. So you have to stay on the other side, but you can shoot any shot as long as you're on that one side, that one half of the circle. 180 degrees, and this is super helpful to be able to do like when you've got talking heads and you're like, "Oh, I've got to change this up or it's going to get really boring." But which shoulder do I go over? Literally take your phone, set up two action figures and just start moving your phone around and you can compose some really interesting shots. Yeah. As long as you don't cross that line of action, you're fine. And that yeah. was, that was the only time I understood it because for me, this yeah. type of thing, when I hear about it or when I read about it, it didn't translate into like, okay, well that sounds important and I believe everyone that it's important, but yeah. still, I have no idea what to do. That was so the only like, time it made sense is I had to do a 3D mock-up. Yeah. I mean, the best uh, – the way you're describing is good. Uh, another really good way to keep it simple is if someone's on the left, they stay on the left. Mm -hmm. If someone's on the right, they stay on the right. If you want them to shift, you can do that for two reasons. Um, one is if you're showing a passage of time because it creates a, a time distortion. Let's say – you're watching Corey and I, and suddenly I switch sides, it's going to feel like time passed. Um, that's that's just a weird mental thing. It's a psychological thing, and it's used very well in, like, montages. So if you're doing, like, a montage where a, a, a massive moment in time is happening, um, there we go. Time has passed. Now we've crossed the line. Um, although... 
if you're watching this live, Corey also conducted the second time you can do it, which is if you show a person cross the line, if you walk with the character crossing the line, then you're able to switch shots. So you'll see this in film all the time, where if somebody's on the left and the camera pans and follows them moving to the right, then you don't have this perception of the time passing. So it's it's a really good thing to keep in mind. And I want to bring up a really good example of why. One of my least favorite movies is the um, the Superman movie, the, one of the more recent ones. I think it's like Man of Steel. And part of why I didn't like it was there's the sequence where he is walking, Superman is walking into the Fortress of Solitude. And my wife and I thought it was a flashback sequence, like that it was like taking place in the present and then flashing back. And I've talked to so many people who had the same experience watching the same scene where they were like, yeah, what was with that scene? (laughs) The problem with that scene was the line of action was all over the place. And so it creates this distortion and unfollowability. Um, It's something Michael Bay does a lot in fight sequences, which is why they're really hard to follow. Even though they're all glittery and stuff, they're really hard to follow because they don't obey the line of action. If they followed the line of action in the Transformers fight sequences, I guarantee you those movies would be much more easy to follow and um, more effective. Not that... The point, I'm also bringing those up because there are people who are huge who are making tons of money who don't follow the line of action. But I'm just saying, like, to be a coherent storyteller, that's a good thing. And it's a good thing to be aware of because let's say you do want to create a perception of time within a similar sequence, it's literally just flip the characters. <laughs> like, right. um, that's, that's a really good way to do it. But if you're going to cross the line, then you should have a panel that kind of a couple panels that show somebody physically crossing the line. Um, And then for the line and figuring that out, what Corey was saying is perfect. Like just imagine, (laughs) imagine you're on a football field, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I Um, would, I would, I would add to that. Um, That's how you can cross the line, but we didn't address why. So like, I feel like a lot of beginners would listen to what we just said and say, Oh, cool. Now I know how to do it. And so I'm going to do it, but you shouldn't do that unless there's a good reason. Right. And so like one of the problems that most people and myself included have with Michael Bay is that he never thinks about why or when he only thinks about how. And so he has mastered this one shot. And it's a shot that he didn't invent. I mean, you know, people like Akira Kurosawa have been doing it forever, um, where you have multiple things moving in opposite direction from each other as you have a tracking parallax. So you're you're moving the camera across several foregrounds, several midgrounds, and several backgrounds. So you kind of get that kind of. You know, the fence that's right next to you as you're in a speeding car goes way faster than the mountains that are further away, right? But he does that with multiple layers of detail. That is an exceptionally impactful moment in, in cinema. But the problem with Michael Bay is that that shot happens 80% of the movie. And so the problem at no point in time, do you feel like, Oh, this is an impactful moment. It's, it's the same thing. This is my rule of thumb. If you take an essay and you highlight the entire thing 
and make it all bold, nothing is bold, right? But if you bold a single word, then that word is bold because it's a it's bold in contrast to all of the rest of the body copy that isn't bold. And so if you want an exceptionally impactful shot, then do what Michael Bay does, but you do it at the moment of the story that should have impact. And yeah. that's the same thing with the crossing the line of action. You can cross the line of action and there are ways to do it. And Josh just discussed two of the ways to do that. But why and when you should never do that because you can, you should yeah. only do that because there is a change happening, right? There is because in, in cinema, when the camera flips around 180 degrees or spins around a character while they're trying to work something out. They're doing that because literally they're trying to show you this character is changing their perspective on something. They're changing yes. their mind. There's a character beat that's happening. We should probably talk about character beats on a future episode as well. But yes. like, but if you cross the line of action, you should never do that just because, well, I'm kind of bored of having this guy on the left and this girl on the right. You should do that because like, Something has changed that's significant in the story. The other thing is, if you do that, you should probably not do it 15 more times, yes. right? Because there's no way that you have that many impactful moments unless it's like a 3,000-page epic, right? But if yeah. you're telling a 20-page story and you've crossed the line of action 10 times in that story – you don't know what you're doing because there's no impact because you've just highlighted the entire page and made everything bold. And so in contrast, nothing is bold. Yeah. And, and just once again, like, you know, with all of this, it's about clarity. So the point being like, since we know we're kind of psychologically wired to like, be like that person is on the left, that person's on the right. And as long as that doesn't change, it doesn't jar us. But the second it changes, no, that's going to jar a reader. It, it might jar them for a different reason. So the reason most people cross the line all the time is, is exactly what Corey was describing, which is like this conversation sequence is getting boring. I'm going to show it in a, from a different viewpoint. But the cool thing about being an artist is sometimes the restrictions give you play and freedom. So like if you think of the restriction, this character's on the left, this character's on the right. I haven't shown them cross. So how do I do another shot where I keep the character on the left and keep this character on the right and keep it interesting and different? If I do an overhead shot and keep the character on the left and the right, if, if I do, you know, uh, uh, anti-perspective, the character's on the left and on the right. If I do an over-shoulder shot, which shoulder do I have to do to keep the character on the left and the, char the other character on the right? It's really, really great. Um, uh, it's just a really great thing. If you want to switch shoulders, then just show the head for a second for one panel and then switch shoulders. And I, I was know? reading, I was reading this book called story and yeah. I forget the author, but it's like a quintessential book on, uh, writing screenplays. It is phenomenal. And I will look up who the author is, uh, in a minute, but, um, he was describing the scene and it was the perfect example of what we were talking about in the last episode. Um, I think a lot of people would choose to focus on people's faces a hundred percent of the time that they're talking, 
but he was he was like you know describing this scene where this guy who has been cheating on his wife comes home to find out that his wife has found out and has left but as he enters before he finds out as he enters the room there is a close up of him putting his ring on his finger putting his wedding ring on his finger as he comes into his home and that is a, that is an impactful moment because it speaks volumes about the duplicity that of, of this guy's life that he's living, ab- about the duality, about the fact that when he comes into his home, he assumes that everything's going to be fine and that he will remain married. But when he's outside of his home, he can take his ring off and do whatever he wants. And that scene is actually replayed in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where it, sh- it shows this montage of both of them killing people during the day, doing this wild lifestyle about what they're not lit. They're not not telling each other and then they come home to have this very boring mundane kind of uh rote scripted marriage where neither of them are happy and they both take their rings off before they go to work and put their rings back on as they come home and the shot doesn't involve their face there's so much that's said when you can focus on other things that are symbolic um you know, and you see this a lot where somebody will twist their ring when they're worried about their marriage or when they're thinking about their wife or yeah. when they're, you know, whatever, and that type of thing. And so that was just one example. Like, is there something yeah. else in that scene that would that would say something? You know, like the way that the person is um, you know, doing something or tapping their foot or the fact that their shoes are untied or, you know, the fact that their shirt is unbutton missed a button or something. Like you can you can focus on a ton of stuff that doesn't just have to be their face. And so if you're bored in a conversation, if you're bored drawing a talking head conversation, chances are your audience is also very bored, but don't cross the line of action unless it's supposed to be an impactful moment. If it's not supposed to be an impactful moment, you can enrich that conversation by changing the shot and finding other things in the scene that you can focus on that you can draw attention to. Exactly. And, and I mean, like, you know, um, I, I think it's really helpful to just kind of study film a little bit. And um, you don't have to be studying all the time. But the nice thing about being an artist is I feel like you kind of always are studying all the time. So, like, for me, even watching that Superman movie that I was bringing up was a really valuable lesson for me because I was like, why am I not liking this movie? It's because they're crossing the line of action all the time. The editing and the framing is just it's it's indecipherable. So, like while there's really good effects and there's a high budget and it's pretty well cast, I just can't follow this movie. And so I was remembering in my head, sort of keep that in in mind when I'm working on stuff because I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend a big time budget on something that's going to be indecipherable. And, um, and, And similarly, like, you know, there are times where I've watched, like, one of the movies I love watching all the time, it's a cliche, but it's just for framing and for kind of, like, telling a mundane story in, like, a really hyper-interesting way, um, like, The Graduate is just unbelievable. Like, the framing, the shots, the um, even the story beats and moments they choose to kind of focus on. Like, there's a sequence where the character runs and they pan with the character, and it's one of the most, like, intelligent kind of things to have as, like, a character trait for this character in the film. And... Um, there's a lot of just brilliant shots in that movie, but the point being like um, you, you have a lot of control as a storyteller and just the way you choose tempo and the way you choose to frame things. Like we had a discussion about last time. Um, 
there's there's a lot of little elements of control, which is why I think a lot of cartoonists <laughs> and people who are drawn to cartooning are, are really into the idea of having a project that's an art project that they have total control over. Yeah. Um, because you have so many tools at your disposal. <clears throat> um, and so, like, hopefully we can touch on more of these, like, on, on another one. Because I feel like any time we talk about comics kind of fundamentals and stuff, we, we, we end up with some pretty interesting content. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. So, how cool. are the, how are the chats? Anything going on down there? Um, I, I think Pepper commented on the critical, um, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm trying to decipher it. It said, I bet it's the critical. So I'm not quite sure. Um, but I, but I'm guessing that was probably during our discussion about criticism and that's kind of all, all we have so far in the chats. So, cool. um, yeah, but thank you. Thank you for joining us in the chats. And for those of you who are listening on iTunes, uh, thanks. And if you enjoyed this, please, uh, you know, leave us a rating on iTunes or like a, a five-star rating. Um, uh, um, so you can find out uh, Corey's work at CoreyKerr.com. You can find my work at QuarterlyStories.com. Um, you should also check out uh, Corey's um, YouTube channel, which is which is linked in the uh, in the comments section below because he posted a video of that tractor, which is really cool. It's cool to see the process of him kind of building these things. Um, and uh, thanks again. Um, we will see you guys probably on Monday. Have a good weekend.